Welcome to Europe Listens from the European Council on Foreign Relations, a podcast where we listen to thought leaders outside of Europe on the global challenges we face and how they see Europe's role and responsibilities. Hello and welcome back to Europe Listens, brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Jana Polierin, head of ECFR's Berlin office. And I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. In the last two episodes, we explored multilateral cooperation on climate. We heard from Shauna Aminath, Minister of the Environment, Climate Change and Technology in the Maldives, on her experiences and expectations of the UN Climate Conference COP. And we heard from Avinash Prasad, Climate Envoy to Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados, about their bold plan for climate financing, the Bridgetown Initiative. We heard how this restructuring of international finance could help countries on the front line of the climate crisis better protect against disaster and, at the same time, transition to green energy. But if we can unlock more capital to build up clean energy technology, we also need to make sure that development is happening in the most effective and equitable way. So today, we're taking a closer look at green energy partnerships. Beyond the UN roundtables, countries around the globe are forging hundreds of bilateral and multilateral deals to advance the clean energy transition. But how are these schemes designed and managed? What kinds of technologies are they developing? And who is benefiting? To answer these and other questions, we are delighted to be joined today by Danashri Jayaram, Assistant Professor at the Department of Geopolitics and International Relations and Co-Coordinator of the Center for Climate Studies at Manipal Academy of Higher Education in Karnataka, India. Currently, Danashri is also a guest researcher at Freie Universität in Berlin. Danashri, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Danashri, if there's one country that's really championing green energy partnerships, it's India. Since 2016, we've seen several green tech schemes between India and the EU, including the Green Energy and Climate Partnership, a Green Hydrogen Forum, and the new EU-Indian Trade and Technology Council, launched just a couple of months ago. India has also announced a suite of bilateral schemes with Italy, Denmark, Germany and France and others. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has described the country's potential in green energy as, and I quote, no less than a gold mine. So Danashri, is this a concerted push on the part of the Modi government? When you talk about India's push for renewable energy partnerships, this is obviously in tune with India's own energy requirements as well as climate objectives. And this is something of a concerted push, like you said, and this goes back to even the previous government. I wouldn't put it just at the current government because since the 2007-8 National Action Plan on Climate Change and several other initiatives that were brought domestically to spur the renewable energy demand 
demand and also deployment and development at the domestic level, including through multilateral and bilateral partnerships, is something that was built more than a decade ago. And in the past decade, you would see that although energy demand has increased and, of course, coal demand has not decreased, but at the same time, you have a you know large-scale push for renewable energy to meet those energy requirements. So there is a sort of policy push for various kinds of renewable energy investments, including solar, wind, and like you mentioned, also the green hydrogen. So in the in the past few months, India has also announced a green hydrogen mission. It has also declared a green, so-called green budget, which was sort of a landmark budget in the sense that it did put forth several initiatives for increasing capital investments to basically reach the net zero target of 2070. So when India declared the net zero target of 2070, the question was, how would India achieve it? And this wasn't clear at the beginning. And I think slowly but surely, this is becoming clearer with the kind of push that is happening at the budgetary level, at the institutional level, as well as policy level. And if you look at even India's announcements at the Glasgow summit, and thereafter, of course, the Panchamrit was also kind of operationalized through the updated NDCs, which also kind of gives an idea of how India wants to produce like 50% of its energy with non-fossil fuel sources by 2030. But we also have to remember that this is also increasing the capacity of renewable energy, but we don't know how much of this is actually going to contribute to actual energy demand. Now, this is one of the challenges, but still, this is like a major push. And there is also lifestyle for environment mission. There's also like a push for creation of carbon sink, including in the updated NDCs, which mentions that almost 2.5 to 3 billion tons of carbon dioxide would be absorbed through forestation and reforestation programs. There is also push to incentivize uh, domestic manufacturing of for solar panels, including, for instance, by imposing customs duty on imported solar cells. And this is also kind of a geostrategic concern because India's dependence on China, for instance, is a, is a major factor there. And also the fact that there is a push for more and more just transitions. And I think this is a major shift in India's thinking around renewable energy transition because including, for instance, the coal ministry now has a section on just transition. And states like Jharkhand, uh, which is a coal state, most of its revenue comes from coal mining is also thinking on lines of how do we bring in just transitions into the system uh, in a more coordinated manner. But these are just the signs of shifts. This is just the beginning and there is a lot that needs to be done. So yes, all of these will require a lot of investments. And in this endeavor, obviously, you need more and more multilateral and bilateral partnerships, including with partners such as the European Union, which has actually, like you mentioned, has set a certain agenda on these kind of partnerships since 2016, but even before with individual countries like Germany, France, Sweden and others. Particularly in sectors like transport, in electricity, there is a lot of push, but there are some other sectors which will require further push, like heavy industries. So these are hard to abate sectors like steel, aluminium, which require further push to actually reach the net zero target. But in the government is slowly focusing on these sectors as well, but uh, it's a gradual sort of process. Let's dive a bit deeper into some of those obstacles and, and issues that you just mentioned. Of course, these schemes are usually announced with a lot of fanfare and optimism, but we know that especially partnerships often run into problems at some point. So what are the issues and potential obstacles that we need to be mindful of? 
I think the post-COVID scenario has obviously put a lot of constraints on renewable energy investments and development and deployment in, in India as well. And that's going to be a major part as to how do you recover. So the recovery is still going on in terms of, you know, the economic downturn that was seen over the past couple of years because of the pandemic. In fact, India could not meet the 175 gigawatt uh, solar target by 2022. And this also is because of, you know, the slowdown, especially the supply chains were disrupted, uh, investments also reduced. And there's also like investments which are mostly domestic. And I think India is currently sort of looking at how do we get investments from abroad? Most of India's uh, uh, energy, renewable energy development has happened through investments which are more from domestic sources. So I think that is also a, a challenge in terms of financial and technological advancements. Regulatory pressures are obviously there. So India has been trying to reform the electricity sector for a long time. It hasn't happened. So even if you're trying to push for renewable energy, this cannot happen without a systemic change because India's electricity grids and the laws and, you know, the infrastructure, everything needs an overhaul. So without that, you cannot really push for, that's why I said, like, you can do capacity addition, but to actualize this capacity addition to contribution to the electricity demand itself is something that is another level of engagement with partnerships and other things. So I think uh, infrastructure development, regulatory measures, are, these are all issues that will come in the way of the green energy partnerships. But also, in fact, since the pandemic, the cost of manufacturing has gone up. And this is obviously due to supply chain disruptions. And this has obviously also added to the tariffs. So for a long time, you know, there was this concern, obviously, over renewable energy production and what will be the cost of this. This had come down significantly. In fact, in many Indian states, it was even cheaper than production of coal-based power. But this, again, went up in over the past couple of years. So the tariff revisions and other things also have to take note of these changes that are being seen within the international energy market. Geopolitical challenges are there, especially with Ukraine crisis. There is a huge energy deficit which is being felt and obviously India is also kind of pushing for buying crude oil from Russia at a time when there are sanctions imposed on Russia. So that's another concern. But uh, investments are coming in. Obviously, there is an uptick in the investments, but there are there is still a lack of strategy at the domestic level. So India is, although there is a centralized kind of decision-making system, but at the same time, you have many states with different interests. So I think at the strategic level, you also have to consider what the states want, how they're going to go about implementing their own state action plans on climate change. And many states have also revised their action plans, which is also a very significant development. So how are states going to push for more uh, renewable energy targets. Obviously, some states are ahead, while many states are still laggards when it comes to this. So that concerted strategic sort of intent is still missing at the domestic level. Even for that matter, domestic manufacturing, that's a big challenge as well. So India is trying to push for that. But then what we can see is that when it comes to solar panel manufacturing or battery manufacturing, it is still way behind. So the self-sufficiency factor is a big challenge because India is still sort of dependent on raw materials and complete products from other countries. Although the at least the manufactured products slowly sort of shifting base to India, but raw materials still come from elsewhere. Now that's going to be a challenge as well. I think overall the dependence of the country on coal, especially when it comes to electricity supply, 
and fossil fuels like oil for the transportation sector like this is still a major factor like this is not going to disappear in the next few years and we can expect that this kind of demand is going to increase further and i would say considering we are talking about green energy partnerships there is also a concern that there is not enough budgetary allocation for adaptation uh in fact even in the recent budget which was hailed as a green budget and something that will push low carbon development strategy especially since india has also declared the low carbon strategy the long term low carbon development strategy at the sharmal sheikh climate summit but beyond that the adaptation part seems to be not prioritized in policy which is quite contradictory to how india positions itself internationally where it pushes for adaptation loss and damage so how is it going to deal with the fact that there is a lack of a proper institutional climate finance mechanism in the country so investments may coming in but how is this money going to be used and how will it be done in a way that is more equitable so these are some of the challenges which obviously will have to be looked into and beyond that i would i would also say the institutions in india when it comes to climate change uh there are no exclusive institutions so you have different ministries you have different agencies looking at climate change so pretty much uh, as as some some of the scholarship on india's climate policy also says that you have climate change layered upon existing institutions that also leads to a lack of accountability transparency lack of concerted strategic sort of intent uh, over there like you know so in in that's going to be a problem in the long run especially when it you know comes to achieving net zero target or india's 2030 target because all of this will depend on also having a robust climate institution in place or climate law in place which is lacking currently so all these are different challenges uh, but also how the international climate policy evolves over the next couple of years will also will uh, have an impact on how india will position itself but i think it's very clear that the political will is there it's just trying to navigate these bureaucratic institutional financial technological and all these landscapes which will take some time danashri before i come to the cooperation with the europeans i have a little follow up question to what you just said because you mentioned raw materials and india's dependency on other actors that is actually very true also for germany and europe so here china comes in as i think a very important player especially when it comes to solar panels and wafer technology and all of this so is india particularly concerned of the role of china here or or not so much because it's actually a debate we are having in germany quite a bit it's definitely of major concern so i think this was of major concern for india even before the european union or others woke up to this challenge because obviously there's geopolitical rivalry between india and china and there's ongoing border disputes and conflicts which is affecting the trust which was anyway low even previously but now it's at an all time low so any kind of dependency on china is seen as a national security threat and this is especially also in the case of uh, critical raw materials uh, and i think this is definitely an area in which eu uh, uh, countries like germany us japan australia india they are all on the same side of the discussion when it comes to diversifying supply chains critical mineral value chains because even if china's dominance in the sector has gone down when it comes to the downstream kind of activities around extraction it has reduced a little bit over the past decade but when it comes to processing of raw materials china is still 
the most dominant actor and this is where infrastructure for like processing facilities or you know extraction which is more sustainably done or in the sense without having large scale like social and environmental harms now these are the issues on which definitely there is more scope for cooperation between countries like india and european union and also other countries like the us for instance which is also talking about similar kind of shifts in these partnerships so yes india is definitely concerned about it uh, because uh, just around the pandemic this discussion had picked up a lot of momentum that almost 80% of india's solar panels come from china so you know most of india's energy transition plans then would depend on how china sort of manages its own uh, domestic solar manufacturing industry or the fact that recently for instance china also said that they would impose duty on solar panels uh, in response to some of this kind of trade war that is going on between china and us which will also affect other countries so it's not just the united states but also countries like india that would be affected so there is of course you know this is a major factor and this will be something that obviously will push india to look for even critical minerals within its its own territory like recently uh, the indian uh, geological authorities i mean it's inferred resources but still it's a discovery of lithium reserves uh, in in the northern part of india in, in the state of jammu and kashmir now this is being seen as a game changer because india imports almost 100% of its lithium from abroad and lithium is a major critical raw material that is required for especially uh, lithium batteries that is for transition in the transportation sector so this kind of concerted push even to discover resources or critical raw materials within its own territory and maybe also through partnerships with other countries will continue over the next couple of years and you know and then beyond that as well So Danashri let's now turn to cooperation between India and Europe In February as I mentioned a little earlier we saw the launch of the EU-India Trade and Technology Council. That is a new multilateral forum designed to promote research and innovation in green and clean energy technology. When it comes to this kind of green tech cooperation, how can we ensure equity so that India and European countries are genuine co-creators and co-recipients? That's an important question for almost every single green partnership that is signed between countries because a lot of it is top down a lot of it is between governments without engagement or without enough engagement or adequate engagement with all the stakeholders at the local level and this is a major challenge in India as well like when when we talk about for instance this particular council talks about several uh, issues of you know mutual concern and co-partnership talks about clean energy circular economy waste management it talks about you know fostering cooperation between uh, small and medium enterprises it talks about startups so there is a whole emphasis on various actors but i think the challenge again lies in how we go about implementing these strategies at the local level because we have seen that some of these large scale solar parks and wind farms and such 
you know, projects have also led to displacement of local communities, land grabs. Uh, they've also led to environmental harms in several cases. There hasn't been enough participatory processes. So these are the issues that uh, partnerships, uh, including uh, at multilateral level, need to focus on. That how how do the local communities really benefit from these partnerships? Are they part of the process or are they excluded from it? Or do they actually come in the way of harm because of these partnerships? In many cases, local farmers who are displaced because of these large-scale renewable energy projects, they are not even employed by the projects that are implemented. Even if they are uh, employed, uh, they are not paid enough or the fact that they don't have access to all the facilities or they don't have the training to be part of the process uh, or to be like operating in these renewable energy projects. So I think the capacity buildings, building skills, all these issues become relevant in this discussion. And I think for me, it is also important that these partnerships become, for instance, more inclusive in the sense it is also more gender responsive and maybe transformative in that sense. Because, uh, you know, many of these partnerships, again, don't really indicate gender sensitivity, although... Uh, Germany, for instance, has a feminist foreign policy now. So can it really translate this policy into also making sure that gender is going to be a major part of every single partnership that Germany enters into with countries like India, where there is obviously like women are more vulnerable to climate change. They're also excluded from some of this kind of energy transitions process that is happening. But at the same time, you have a lot of grassroots mobilizations happening, which are focusing on, uh, you know, uh, for uh, to make women uh, like agents of change, but without like, really burdening them with the fact that they also have to do other work, but also they have to like you know make these changes at the local level. So it is important that these processes, in that sense, become more inclusive. And in a way, I also saw that you know with this kind of council and uh, and with these kind of partnerships, you can also see that this also affects trade, right? So this is not just about climate; this is also about trade. So this can also be a push for making trade more inclusive and integrate climate issues into trade more and more. But of course, with the realization that this could have its local implications and this has to take the local realities into consideration. So this is possibly one of the things that such partnerships have to focus on more and more. Dhanashri, you mentioned earlier that green hydrogen is a focus for India with the government approving the National Green Hydrogen Mission in January 2022. Europeans are increasingly interested in green hydrogen as well. Can you tell us a little more about this technology? How does it work? So the reason why India wants to get on board with green hydrogen is because India doesn't want to be left behind when it comes to how this technology evolves in the coming years. And I think India realizes that, especially with how renewable energy push uh, was something that China leveraged a lot, uh, you know, in the 1990s and 2000s. So, so this is possibly the right time to get on board and, you know, declare a national green hydrogen mission and start right away with research and development and also cooperate with other players as to how to develop this. And of course, green hydrogen is basically you split hydrogen from water using electricity from renewables. So there's also grey hydrogen and blue hydrogen. So grey hydrogen has been in use for 
for some time already but it is the dirty hydrogen so now uh, you're trying to uh, you know push for more blue hydrogen so blue hydrogen is less dirtier but of course it's not as clean as green hydrogen uh, it's also based on natural gas and coal uh, gasification and you know uh, but uh, why is it cleaner it's because it uses the carbon capture and utilization and storage basically so the idea is that it's less dirtier than uh, than gray hydrogen green hydrogen on the other hand is cleaner the idea is it's going to have zero emissions which um, again it's questionable but then yes uh, you know the idea is that it would be close to zero carbon at least if not uh, completely zero carbon or less or no carbon emissions at all in that sense uh, but the industry is still very much in infancy right so across the world this is not just in india so all over the world it's still uh, very small it still does not have the capacity we haven't reached that economies of scale to commercialize it to that extent uh, but the fact that there is there is a lot of policy engagement with this in india eu and other countries it means that there is a political will so like renewable energy it is possible to reach that economies of scale over the next 5 to 10 years or maybe little bit more like 15 years to actually make it more realizable and actionable because india has these heavy industries and hard to abate sectors like steel cement oil refineries which are all now looking at the possibility of green hydrogen as a source because you know renewable energy can't power these big industries you know it doesn't have the capacity to do that so what can power them so the idea is okay you know green hydrogen is possible alternative and it's cleaner and because industries are slowly also declaring their own sort of net zero targets and they're saying we will be in line with the india's net zero targets so uh, there is push for it at the industrial level as well and at the same time so this is not just about domestic use I think for India it's also critical that at least initially it would be able to export green hydrogen to other countries because it's going to be an expensive affair especially in the beginning and this is where domestically most users may not be able to pay for this kind of amount or this kind of production cost but EU or other countries may be in a position to do that. So, of course, uh, exports is one thing, but it's going to be a dilemma over the years. Like, how is India going to focus on domestic energy demand and exports? Is it going to be like pushed for just exports, and that means? our own energy demand and you know domestic consumption would then get affected and also the other part about in india's challenge with respect to green hydrogen is you know scaling up our domestic manufacturing of electrolyzers which is used to split the hydrogen and you know so we need like more and more r&d into this and this again is an area where india and eu have a sort of you know commonality or complementarity in terms of how this can be achieved with more r&d and also like you know the fact that you need incentives for industries and other actors to switch to green hydrogen right so they're not going to do it as of now because it's not commercial and like i said it's not as of now in economies of scale so there are like refiners uh, including state controlled refiners who refineries in fact that have announced that they would like to begin producing green hydrogen in india's case domestic production to be increased by even 2030 the target is 5 million tons per year 
there are some companies which are building the electrolyzer capacity as well, mostly private sector. So the private sector is sort of getting on board, which is also very critical for these kind of policies to work. And then some ports like in Indian Ministry of Ports and Shipping are also looking at building these green hydrogen hubs, particularly Gujarat, Odisha, Tamil Nadu. Now, these are some of the states which are also sort of uh, focusing on producing green hydrogen and, you know, creating these hubs, basically. One another challenge which I would like to mention is that production of green hydrogen also requires like ample amount of water. Now, this is going to be a challenge. So in India, if you look at where really the renewable energy hubs are, these are all water stressed states. So yes, more research needs to be done, like how we can use wastewater or we can use seawater. But again, the question of, you know, science uh, and the question of the technical issues with regard to using water other than fresh water is going to be also something problematic because as they say, you need like demineralized fresh water for, you know, for the electrolyzers to have maximum capacity. But how do we then navigate this issue of water availability? Because uh, if you're going to have these hubs in states where there is enough water, then you are away from renewable energy hubs and then the transmission costs would be massive. So all these questions will have to be then addressed. Danashri, I'd like to hear a little more about India's net zero pledge for 2070 uh, announced at COP last year. Do you see other opportunities for EU-India cooperation to support this transition? There was an effort, at least uh, an initiative, to kickstart negotiations on the Just Energy Transitions Partnership, which EU uh, G7 countries in particular have signed with South Africa, Indonesia and Vietnam already. But with India, it did not work out because of several concerns at the domestic level. So this is where, again, I go back to the question of how do you take the local stakeholders into confidence? And that's very important. Not every decision is made at the central level. So the local stakeholders, particularly coal states, And also power ministry, coal ministry. Now, these are the ministries which feel that they are not yet prepared or they're not yet ready for these kind of partnerships where some of these decisions will be made elsewhere and then sort of imposed upon India to bring into action all these different changes very rapidly. I think some lessons have been learned from the cases of South Africa and Indonesia as well, where there was less preparation and, you know, these countries sort of jumped into the partnership without much thought of how this would be implemented, what kind of investments would be considered. So I think uh, the JETP is definitely an interesting model to work upon and India may and hopefully will bring itself on board as well, along with some of the other countries which are interested in this particular model. But I think for this, uh, like I said, both the EU and India will have to sit down and discuss about mutual interest. I think for India, it's very interesting to see that the focus is clearly on renewable energy transformation, like renewable energy development and deployment, that we need to put more investments into RE, or green hydrogen or other kinds of clean energy partnerships. But it's not as much about decarbonization in a way that, you know, you transition away from coal. So the focus, if the focus of JETP is exclusively on transitioning away from coal, It's an additional burden on many, many local stakeholders who may not be willing to come on board 
immediately. There's, they're going to resist these moves. There are going to be coal lobbies which will resist these moves. So for the Indian government, first to take all these different actors on board and also for the EU to really talk to these stakeholders will be very important as to understand what their interests are and how they want to go about this. That is one uh, of the issues. And I think, I mean, I'm just focusing, I mean, we have spoken about many, many partnerships already, but I'm focusing on some of the challenges here because I think that's very critical as we move forward and forging these partnerships. The other is the carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism, which is kind of emerging as a bottleneck because, um, of course, for for the EU, this is, uh, as the EU says, it is a climate measure, it's not a trade measure. But I think, again, EU seems to be missing the point that this is not just a climate issue for many countries that would be affected by this mechanism, especially in the developing uh, countries like India. I mean, India has clearly said this is a protectionist measure, unilateral measure. This violates common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. It's discriminatory trade rules. So, so even if EU insists that this is not a trade measure, unfortunately, for the rest of the world, which is going to be affected by how this is going to be rolled out in the next couple of years, uh, with all the laws and everything not yet clear about it but then once it's rolled out in a uh, in a uh, in at a, at the glo- at the global level uh, it's going to affect no matter what the domestic manufacturing industries of many of these developing countries especially for India one of the concerns is that you know uh, in 2022 for instance 27% of India's iron steel and aluminium exports worth almost 8.2 billion dollars actually went to EU I mean it came to EU so this is going to be a concern that if you know if you're going to impose these additional tariffs this is going to affect the exports capacity of countries like India which only recently started to become more and more prominent especially because India is kind of building its manufacturing industry now and it is uh, focusing on Atmanirbhar Bharat and Make in India and all these Atmanirbhar means self-sufficient and self-reliance basically. So this is an area where India is focusing on building its own manufacturing capacity. So at this time, when you bring in these kind of measures, it's going to create, uh, at least it's going to create some kind of gap in terms of understanding what uh, what both both the parties want. So I think the the co-dependencies, the co-creation of these principles is very, very critical for something like the net zero discourse or the net zero politics to really work at the ground level where different actors need to not bring in these measures without, you know, really consulting in a, in a much bigger way with other countries. And I think EU is also having similar problems with, say, Southeast Asian countries on the deforestation uh, regulations, for instance. So, so in all these issues, it's very clear that uh, both these parties have challenges in terms of communicating the mutual interests and how this will be implemented. And yeah, in, in, in when it comes to net zero as well, it's the same story for India that it needs to clarify as to what its strategy is, how it will go about its implementation in the in especially the short term measures, which are I think clearer right now it's getting clearer but at least the medium term measures are not clear and the long term measures which is uh, it's kind of mentioned in the long term strategy but we need sort of more efforts at the at the state level and other levels where some of these decisions are taken from your answer so far it's become really clear to me that you need to be mindful of the dynamics between state level authorities and the national government 
that you need to include local stakeholders, that you need to pursue a gender-sensitive approach to a lot of these questions. Uh, I want to zoom out a bit and, and look at Indian democracy. Um, there's been quite a bit of discussion in the climate conversation about the challenges uh, climate change poses for democracy. And at the same time, the difficulty of climate change mitigation in a democratic system. What's your view on this? How do you see Indian democracy relating to its green transition? I think so far, the fact that we have these different layers of institutions and different layers of governance mechanisms within different states and different even sub-regions for that matter, it has helped. So in a way, that is because we have a democracy in place. It wouldn't have been possible if it was all centralized. So yes, the net zero target, when... Uh, Prime Minister Modi declared it, it was obviously seen as a very, very centralized sort of decision making where, you know, many stakeholders may not have been taken into confidence. But the way the net zero, I'm taking net zero as a case in point, because uh, it kind of shows you how rapidly some of these norms can diffuse at the local level when there is an uptake for these kind of positive sort of reforms and structural changes. So it means that, you know, many states, for instance, now have a net zero target. Some of them even before the, the central government. Indian Railways has a 2030 net zero target because they have already set the foundation for electrification, which is helping them move towards the target by 2030. Some of the industries have also declared a net zero target. Cities like Mumbai have also said, okay, they would also like to join the net zero bandwagon. So it seems that there is a lot of interest in joining this bandwagon and how to leverage the kind of opportunities that may be there in terms of attracting investments, in terms of bringing in political reforms and structural reforms, like I said, within the electricity sector, because this can be that tool to say that, okay, we need to change the way we have been so far. So it, especially those who have been pushing for change in these sectors will be very happy to use this as a leverage. I'm very optimistic about the fact that there is a lot of local grassroots mobilizations which even without the government intervention have been looking at ways in which this can be done through various ways. I mean, just one example which I can say is that of the Solar Mamas, uh, which uh, has been quite successful in bringing women from uh, rural areas and empower them and give them the skills and the training to even like manufacture solar panels and solar cookers and various other kinds of uh, renewable energy-based products. And this has happened. Uh, of course, now the government is also supporting these kind of ventures but this was a totally social enterprise-led program, uh, which has been a huge success. So there is a need to also recognize and identify these grassroots level movements and efforts, which have been quite successful and kind of, you know, upscale them horizontally, vertically in all ways, because that's, that's very critical for a massive country like India to really get on this energy transitions for policies to really work on the ground. Thank you very much, Danashri. I think that was a great conversation. I think we learned a great deal. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today and for this really illuminating conversation. I think you've shared so many perspectives and insights, and I think they can help us really to approach green energy transition and our partnership between the EU and India in a more alert and attentive way. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure listening to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danashri.
Europe Listens is brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations and supported by Stiftung Mercator. Our producer is Eliza Epperley. Project Coordination by Angela Mera. Sound Design and Editing by Benjamin Nash. Thank you for joining us on Europe Listens. Look out for our next series, launching this summer, where we will take a closer look at Europe's role and responsibilities on some of the most pressing issues in digital technology, including data rights, misinformation and cybercrime.